Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Have you ever wondered what makes up those voices in your head? They arise from discursive thought, and Jetsama Akonlamo takes us through the process of identifying their cause and applying the antidote. I would like to offer a teaching that concerns the qualities and characteristics of discursive thought and the problems that go along with it. Hopefully this will be of benefit to those of us that are in, uh, in retreat as well as to those of us that are, that are ongoing practitioners in that the, the, the weight of discursive thought, the, the problems associated with discursive thought often are not understood. It is it's very difficult to understand uh, what is the mechanism of discursive thought and, and in fact what is, uh, what is the weight of it, how, how is it um, uh, debilitating to our practice. When we think about discursive thought and uh, try to evaluate its um, uh, origin, its practice, you know, try to, to see how it works in our minds, what is the cause, what is the effect, there's a, really a lot to consider. First of all, we must consider how discursive thought arises. According to the Buddha, our nature is the primordial wisdom nature, which is uh, clear, undefiled, uncontrived luminosity. Uh, the Buddha describes our nature as being innate wakefulness. Innate wakefulness, free of any distinction, free of any contrivance, uh, free of any division. That nature really cannot be understood from the point of view that we remain in right now. That is to say that we remain uh, with our minds involved in discursive thought and we function with the mind of duality. The mind of duality always makes the distinction between self and other. That is its characteristic nature. That is the first impulse of the mind of duality. The mind of duality arises due to the belief in self-nature as being inherently real and solid. If we were to understand our true nature, we could think of the primordial empty state and we could think of that primordial emptiness as being inseparable from uncontrived uh, and from non-specific luminosity. We could think of that state as being like the mixing or mingling of space and awareness, of empty space and awareness. That state potentially 
exhibits, um, a, a, how should I say, due to its nature, exhibits the tendency to display. Now that's difficult to understand because when, the reason why that's difficult to understand is because when we think of stillness, which we would think of the primordial wisdom state as being, and then we would think of movement, we would think of display as being a kind of movement, we have no way to make the two come together. We think of stillness and movement as being separate. The only way that we have been able to discover or to think of stillness and movement as being two separate things. Likewise, when we think of emptiness and fullness, we think of emptiness and fullness as being two separate things. Because we think of both of them as things. Now, according to the Buddhist teaching, and these are the very earliest of the Buddhist teachings, we are to understand that emptiness and fullness are the same. They are inseparable from one another. It is only the mind of duality that makes distinction. We are to think of stillness and movement as being absolutely the same. Really, it is only the mind of duality that makes the distinction. But make distinction, we do. And yet that primordial luminosity, that primordially empty state, exists also in display form. And that display form cannot be separated from, is not distinguishable from, that primordial lucency. There is absolutely no distinction. The nature, in its display, contains within it all potential. We should think of it as the great maternal sphere of truth. And within that maternal sphere of truth, all things are born. All potential lies within the great womb of the primordial wisdom nature. All potential. It will happen naturally then that all potential will arise. But if understood from the point of view of realization without the mind of uh, uh, duality, that state of arising does not separate from the primordially empty state. There is no separation there. It is only when the mind of distinction arises that there seems to be such a separation. However, we are involved at this time in a continuum in which there does seem to be such a separation. And that separation seems so real that in order to practice effectively, we have to count that separation as being real. That is to say that if you want to try to pretend that duality is not real and pretend that you and I are uh, not perceived as separate and pretend that uh, there, there is no phenomenal reality coming here in this world, all I would have to do to prove you wrong is to get myself a nice sharp pin and come up to you and prick you all over your tiny little body until you admit that you are sensing duality wouldn't take very long, I wouldn't think. So, in that regard, the Buddha teaches us that we cannot pretend that duality does not exist. We cannot pretend that we are not having the experience of samsara. We are, in fact, having the experience of samsara. And since it is seeming solid, we must treat it 
in such a way as to pacify the obstacles that are associated with samsara. Since all potential arises and since all potential in truth is not separable from the primordial wisdom nature, yet since it appears in a very real way to be separable from the primordial wisdom nature, it comes that the mind of duality arises and yet we still in our nature remain that primordial wisdom state unchanging, unborn and yet fully completed that is still remains our nature that can never be changed there is nothing within that nature that can change that nature by its nature is changeless it is completely stable cannot be terminated or compromised in any way yet at the same time and really in an unrelenting fashion because it is possible we have developed the assumption of self-nature and through tremendous amount of time dedicated to habitual tendency. That is to say that the assumption of self-nature, according to the Buddha, occurred a very long time ago. Uh, so long that we cannot measure the time. It's inconceivable time. The teaching is that it is time out of mind. That is to say, inconceivable time. That assumption of self-nature occurred such a long time ago. And through repeated instances of acceptance of that assumption, a very solidly appearing continuum has developed. And that solidly appealing, appearing continuum is the experience that we now have, even at this moment. Part of that experience is discursive thought. Discursive thought arises because in the assumption of self-nature, the only way that self-nature can be assumed is if we distinguish self from other. That distinction has to continually occur in order for the continuum to perpetuate itself. And the momentum of that seems to be uh, a strong force here. The continuum seems to occur due to our continuing it, in a sense. The assumption of the distinction between self and other being constantly reinforced gives rise the potential for, to the potential for reaction, and reaction also constantly occurs. If we realize or assume or, or, or focus on or remain fixated on self-nature, and in order to do that must distinguish self from other, then there has to be a format with which other is registered. So that it is literally impossible to register other without also registering, registering acceptance, rejection, or neutrality. But even neutrality is not non-registration. That neutrality is like a combination of both acceptance and rejection. It is not non-registration. It is not non-noticing, you see. So the reaction phenomena occurs with acceptance, rejection, or neutrality. And that happens, has happened, since time out of mind. Now we have a strongly 
compulsive, really, habitual tendency of the mind instantaneously arising in duality, in uh, maintaining the idea of self, in distinguishing between self and other, and also on top of that, in acting always in a reactive fashion. Now, it isn't any longer a decision, you see. It isn't any longer uh, a vague assumption. Uh, the, according to the teaching, actually, uh, the seeing of object is never the problem. But the, the attraction, uh, repulsion, neutrality, the reaction, the, the discursive thought that arises as an elaboration to that reaction, that is the problem. The desire that arises from that, that is the problem. But now our minds are involved in a deeply ingrained, habitual, compulsive tendency where it happens automatically and it's a very, very strong process. It's like, um, reminds me of a doctor, you know, hitting your knee and your leg jerks up like that. It's automatic. It's like built in to the system. Within that format arises discursive thought. And just as the assumption of self-nature is automatically the case that one cannot have even the most gossamer thin or subtle experience without the assumption of self-nature. And in doing that, that one must automatically assume other to be, uh, to be separate. Uh, the whole reactive process is so automatic and so uh, immediate that discursive thought also arises with, with the same immediacy. Discursive thought occurs as part of the reactive process, and it actually occurs as an elaboration, as part of an elaboration upon the whole process. You must understand the process didn't begin yesterday, you know. The process didn't begin even at our birth. The process began in what is called time out of mind. So we have had a great deal of time in order to develop the habit of discursive thought. Discursive thought goes hand in glove with our perceptual process. What is our perceptual process? We are even taught this, that what we call the five senses, you know, the cornerstones of our perceptual process, you know, uh, sight, hearing, smelling, feeling, touching, these five senses occur only as extensions of our ego. Well, we don't think like that, you know. We think if we see it, we can believe it. You know, if we hear it, it must be so. You know, if I hear, uh, if I hear a book drop, you know, if I hear it drop to the floor and I see it drop to the floor, I would never think to assume anything else. I would think that's what happened. That's how the five senses work. You know, it, it, it just is, is that automatic or reflex. And yet, really, according to the teachings, everything that we see occurs as an extension of our ego. For instance, if you think about the perceptual differences that would occur due to our being one person or, or another, um, you would think about this glass of water. Now, to me, um, this glass of water is pretty small. It's not a big glass of water, as glasses of water go. Um, it's small compared to me. I'm much larger than the glass of water. Um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I would say that it's cool. Um, I'm going to taste it. It's wet. <laughs> and it tastes like water. Now, 
how would another sentient being who also was relying on their perceptual experience experience the same glass of water? Would an ant walk up to the side of this glass and say, pretty small, as glasses of water go? I don't think so. I don't think so. The ant would think that this is a gargantuan thing, very, very big, big enough to drown all of his friends in. Big glass of water. And then uh, maybe, uh, let's see, um, an eel that slithers around in the deep bottom of the ocean where it's very, very cold might taste this water. I don't know if eels taste water, but anyway. And it would say, awfully warm water. That's some, some really warm water you've got there. And then maybe if I found a fish and I showed the fish this water, I doubt that the fish would say to me, say, that's some really wet water you've got there. Because the last person you should ask about water is a fish. I've gotten to use that line twice, haven't I? That's a great line. I say that to my students when we're trying to talk about discursive thought. The last person you should ask about water is a fish. The idea being that we are all engaged in discursive thought in the same way that all fish are in the water and haven't any idea what it is. But to each one of us, it's an entirely different experience. Now, here's another teaching that's uh, traditional teaching. Um, according to the Buddhist teaching, there are many different realms of cyclic existence. See? Uh, this is the human realm, for those of you that had questions about it. <laughs> this is definitely the human realm. And we have our particular sufferings. They're called old age, sickness, and death. And of course, we can name several other sufferings that we've had, like in-laws and taxes. And, but anyway, generally speaking, old age, sickness, and death. And death. There are other realms. One of the realms, uh, for instance, is um, uh, God realm. And in the God realm, uh, there are uh, demigods and devas and different kinds of uh, God beings. Their experience is quite different. They don't really suffer from old age, sickness, and death in the same way that we do. They suffer from their own particular suffering. And the god might actually be able to look at the same glass of water. Now, I saw it as water because I need water. I need water, and that is the karma of my mind. I need water because my body has a high percentage of water in it. So I require water. And the karma of my mind and the karma of the human realm, we all agree that this is water. But a god who has a completely different set of ripening karmic interactions, who has a completely different mind state, a completely different mind nature, a completely different experience, might look at this water and think that it is the nectar of life. That upon drinking this water, they would experience bliss, total bliss. That it is actually a long life nectar to them. You think that that's impossible? Well, you know that uh, even in uh, our own human experience, two different people can have just about the same experience at the same time, on the same day, under the same conditions. And for one person, the experience will be completely upsetting and debilitating. And for another person, it will simply roll off their back, just like water off a duck's back. Now, we know that that's the case, even in our limited experience. How much more so must it be the case in all of the entirety of cyclic existence? So our perceptual process, even that, is not really to be relied upon as something solid and meaningful. How much less so 
is discursive thought. Discursive thought arises in a reactive way. It, if you really examine the discursive thought that goes in the mind, it is chronically and consistently reactive. And all of that reaction depends on the information given to us by the five senses and the conclusions that are drawn from them. Have you ever really examined the discursive thought that arises in your mind for any length of time? Five minutes. Five minutes. Every bit of it is reactive. Every bit of it arises due to false assumption. Every bit of it ignores the primordial wisdom nature, that state of natural lucency that is the true nature. I can't remember where because I'm really a, uh, a person with no memory and uh, um, not that great of a teacher, but I'll tell you that I remember somewhere hearing in Buddhist doctrine that at one point there was a prophecy and the prophecy said something like, in the future uh, there will be uh, uh, those that come and have perfect thoughts or pure thoughts. Now according to Buddhist teaching I can tell you this, a perfect thought or pure thought is no discursive thought at all. A perfect thought or a pure thought, thought is stable recognition of the, primordially lucid, uh, the primordial lucency state, state of lucency. That primordial wisdom state perceived <coughs> in a stable way with the mind experiencing spaciousness and relaxation that state that the Buddha described in himself as being awake. But that is the only true thought. That is the true thought that it was spoken of. But we instead are involved in discursive thought and we are involved in it constantly. Now we can look at, we've looked at some of the causes of discursive thought. What are the results of discursive thought? Well, were you listening to what I described to the children? Uh, about playing superheroes and, and really uh, reckoning with the thoughts that arise within their minds. According to the Buddhist teaching, every single experience that we have at this present moment and have had up until this time arises from cause and effect relationships that we ourselves have brought about. Uh, the Buddha teaches us that it's never necessary to go to like a psychic or a clairvoyant or somebody and say, would you give me a reading? Would you tell me if I were Nefertiti in my past life? Or I've met several Nefertitis actually. Uh, they've all told me about this. Um, or Cleopatra maybe, or uh, let's see who else. Um, uh, oh, I don't know. Alexander the Great or... Nobody was ordinary people. Have you ever noticed that? Ever. There were no ordinary people in the past. Everybody was somebody. But anyway, the Buddha teaches us there is no need to go to a clairvoyant or any psychic and find out who you were in the past. All you have to do to find out who and what you did in the who you were in the past and what you did in the past is to look in the mirror now. That is probably the greatest gift that you can receive is to really understand that teaching. To really understand that where we are right now occurs due to cause and effect relationships that we ourselves have brought about. Not only in this lifetime, but also in previous lifetimes. According to the Buddha, we've had a lot of time to do a lot of stuff. 
some of what we have done to bring ourselves to the condition that we are in are kind of like gross manipulations of our environment or a direct interaction with our environment. Like, for instance, uh, um, if we have killed in the past. And since, you know, since we have lived, since time out of mind, since we have been involved in the propagation of ego since time out of mind, it is more than likely that we have killed many, many times in the past. And according to the Buddhist teaching, if we have killed in the past, then probably in this lifetime <clears throat> we have a, a some body defect, whether it be extreme ugliness or deformity, or actually more usually it would be something like an extremely short lifespan or extremely weak life force. Now, you can't always rely on what you see right now because it may be that that particular karma, that you do have the karma of having killed in the past, but that it isn't ripening at this time. Could ripen next week, you know? Could develop uh, cancer or something, some horribly debilitating disease. We pray that that is not the case, but that can happen. You know, it does happen in cyclic existence. Or one's life might be cut short. That is also possible. Um, and if and if we look at ourselves and we find out that perhaps um, we are extremely lonely, chronically lonely, that we can't really find ourselves satisfied in any relationship. Uh, we we either we don't have relationships. We can't find relationships that we really need, and we feel that we need them, or we are involved in relationships and, and they're not satisfying, they're not deeply satisfying, then we can imagine that previously in our lifetimes that we were very, very self-absorbed, very selfish, you know, very uncaring of the welfare of others, not really supporting of and caring for others. So we can imagine that. Those are the gross things, those are the very obvious things. But there are also subtle inner cause and effect relationships that we develop continually. And these are really discursive thought, is what they are. It seems that we cannot make it through one hour of our day without going through the entire gamut of human emotion, you know? We cannot make it through one hour of our day without feeling a little anger, maybe more anger than a little, uh, some resentment, um, some happiness, some depression, some loneliness, some regret, some whatever it is that you're capable of feeling, whatever it is that's written uh, in the human book, you know, when you get your, um, your, uh, your uh, what is it you get uh, at the beginning of your life? You get a little book that tells you what to do. What are those called? Manual, owner's manual. You get your little human owner's manual, and inside there it tells you all the things that you're supposed to feel as a human. And, and we're busy feeling all of them by the hour. If you really examine your thought, you'll find that each one of them is in there. There's everything from happiness to sadness, from generosity to lust. Uh, everything's tinged with desire. Everything has to do with attraction or, re or rejection. And that is constantly arising within your mind. The problem with that kind of discursive thought is that it creates reality. It continually creates reality. And it is like planting little seeds. Those seeds, by nature, tend to gravitate, in a sense, toward each other. And if we think, uh, you know, if you think uh, some hatred here, and then 11 o'clock we're thinking hatred, 11.15, a little more hatred, 
no more hatred till 12.30, then 12.35, a little more hatred. And, and, you know, you think that, well, it's not so bad. That's the problem with discursive thought is that no one catches you at it. So you think, well, gee, it's not so bad. I've just had a little bit at 11 o'clock and 11.30 and 12.15, and it's not much. You know, it's just a little bit, and I haven't killed anybody today, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that discursive thought, like seed, has weight, and that it tends to uh, um, continue itself. Having one experience of, of thought of hatred doesn't relieve the need to have hatred. It isn't like a release of some kind, you know? It doesn't like uh, uh, finish that. But a thought of hatred actually is the mother of another thought of hatred. And a thought of hatred gone either unrepented or unfinished, uh, finished by a loving kindness, uh, then mothers another thought, then mothers another heart thought. And pretty soon it seems like it seems like what they do is they all gather together in a corner and they say, yo, let's get her now, you know? And before you know it, you have a great deal of hate or anger stewing in your mind. And it might rise during, due to some strange catalyst in your life that you can't really get a hold of. You don't know why it affected you in that way. Hasn't that happened to you? Where something happens in your life that you think shouldn't really bother you that much. It just, it's not that big of a deal. But suddenly it blows you out of the water and you have no mind left. Suddenly you are down the road and out of control. Has that ever happened to you? Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Because I wasn't sure. You all are sitting there going... <laughs> Maybe you're checking your minds right now. Oh, no. Because if this grows, what I'm thinking right now, I'm in big trouble. Anyway, that's a good idea to think like that, you know? <laughs> Eventually, they sort of get together in one place and they beat the stew out of you is what happens. And those seeds grow into trees which grow into fruit. And the thing about a fruit tree is that it produces more seeds. And the thing about seeds is that they produce more fruit trees. And eventually you are eating nothing but the fruit of your mind. And that is our experience. Our experience is literally the fruit of our mind. So discursive thought is something to reckon with. We think that as practitioners, all we have to do is maybe stop killing and stop stealing, you know? We think that maybe if we just keep these vows, it doesn't matter if our minds are a cesspool, a cesspool inside. It really doesn't mind. It really doesn't matter. But that's not true, you know? It matters terribly. It matters more than you can possibly understand. Because the level at which you can really get a hold of yourself, the level at which you can truly change the world, is in your mind is starting with you. That's where you can really get a handle on it. That's the best place to start. So, how to deal with discursive thought of that kind? One thing you don't want to do is to, is to, is to exaggerate or elaborate discursive thought by coming down on yourself and kind of getting on a hate trip, you know, about yourself. Um, that isn't to say that you should not feel remorse. There's a difference there. There's a kind of healthy, um, action-changing, direction-changing remorse that we can feel. You have to feel some remorse or you really can't change. 
But there's a difference between that and just guilt. Actually, my, the insight that I've had with guilt and working with students that have guilt or have chronic guilt in some way is that guilt is an excuse not to change. Because while you're feeling guilty, you don't have to change. You're feeling guilty and that makes you a good boy or girl. To feel guilt, to be overridden with guilt, is, is a good reason to stay just where you are, feeling guilty, and nothing really has to change. But genuine remorse, genuine remorse is different. Genuine remorse is the kind of thing where you say, God, I can't believe that I spent the last half of today just being angry and judgmental, and I wasted the whole day you know, thinking nothing but negative thoughts about this person, wishing harm to this person or just wishing they'd go away, having no compassion. What a waste of my day. I mean, what a wasted period of time. You know, I, I really, I can't see myself doing that. I just, I, I'm sorry that that happened. The reason why I'm sorry that that happened is because it can produce no good result. And that's where the remorse differs from guilt. Guilt just goes, ugh, you know. And remorse says, this produces no result, and I want good result. You see the difference? Can you see that? So, to spend some time in remorse is actually a healthy process. Um, I mean, I do, you know, and I recommend that my students do on a regular basis. But guilt is useless. So don't come down on yourself in a useless or hateful way, but rather examine what you do and see what result it's going to bring. You know, think in a remorseful way that perhaps you've wasted your time. And ultimately, who have you betrayed? You have betrayed yourself. You're the one that's going to get the short end of the stick. So, in order to rectify that kind of discursive thought, you must really begin with a truthful examination, and then you have to begin with remorse. And, and then you have to set, uh, back that up with remorse. And you really can't let yourself get, get away with, oh, but I'm justified here. Because remember the perception issue that I discussed with you? You may feel justified in calling this a glass of water, and a fish may feel justified in calling this a place to live. What's the point? What's the point? There is no justification for negative discursive thought because it does no one no good. So what is the point? How can it possibly bring you good result? Your perception allows you to say that you're justified, so what? Today, this weekend in our retreat, we've been talking about the fact that uh, the uh, Africans that, uh, that uh, really were so horribly cruel to blacks in South Africa felt justified, you know? They felt justified. We saw movies on that this weekend. Um, that um, Hitler had his reasons for destroying the Jews in the horrible and cruel and, and unbelievable way that he did. In his twisted perception, his hate-filled perception, he felt justified. So justification means nothing. You can toss that one. Whenever that one comes up in your mind, you can say, you can ring the uh, inappropriate buzzer. Eh, useless thought. Out. <laughs> And instead, you take that discursive thought that you're having that is negative, and you look at it and say, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I'm a sentient being. I'm having discursive thought again. Big deal. Don't make a big deal out of it. That's the trick, is to not make a big deal out of it. Don't give it any more weight than it has. 
Don't make a big deal out of it, but instead make another pile. Another pile that is equally as big, perhaps bigger. If you can make it bigger, that would be great. When you're thinking to your boss who has just made fun of you again and made you feel like a like a wet rag, you know, made you, made you feel powerless and all of those things that are the best hate producers in the world, you know, the, the best hate producers. Whenever your boss does that to you, and you know you're going to have a run of discursive thought, but as soon as you can get a hold of yourself, do get a hold of yourself and think this is pointless. I mean, this is really useless. And uh, even if, and then the minute you start thinking you're justified, you can ring the justification button, the inappropriate button, eh, useless thought, out. Then what you can do is you can say, you can look at your boss, I mean, look at him. Why, why is he the mean son of a gun he is, or she is? Well, you know, they, probably the mean son of a gun is a mean son of a gun because they themselves are unhappy. They, they can't be living an extremely fulfilling life or they wouldn't be acting the way they are, you know? They can't be happily involved in deep and loving relationships. They can't be uh, definitely moving toward the door of enlightenment or they wouldn't be acting as they are. So they must be miserable people. So you can think to yourself, uh, I, I pray, you know, I wish that this person would, you know, achieve mental peace. I wish that this person would achieve love in their lives. I wish that this person, I wish in the depth of my heart, sincerely wish that this person would achieve enlightenment, you know, for the sake of all beings. And so you begin to accumulate uh, using your discursive thought, because it will exist and it will continue, you see, using your discursive thought to make an equally strong and wonderful pile of virtuous thought, you know, virtuous activity. And then now you're thinking to yourself, but I can't do that because that's hard for me to do. Well, you can't do it for one reason and one reason only, because in the past you haven't. It's a habit, you see? It's a habit. And it's up to you to break the habit. There is no, what are you waiting for? There's no outside force. There's no force outside of you. No drug you can take, no therapy that you can do that is outside of yourself that is going to come into you and is going to break that for you. Only you can break that. And here's how you break it, one step at a time. Just a little bit. A little bit. You develop slowly, slowly, over the period of the time, a period of time, the habit of virtuous discursive thought or of, of virtuous thinking. <coughs> if you can't do it easily, if you can't just, I mean, if you just look at your boss and you think, oh, you little screwball, I'd really like to do something to you, and you just can't get yourself to stop thinking like that, you can't make it. You just, you're thinking, I'm supposed to think kind thoughts about you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, if that's where you're starting, then that's where you're starting. You know, big deal. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't make a big deal about it, but start somewhere. Start wherever you are. And think to yourself, I hope that you're happy. Of course, it's going to sound like, I hope you're happy now. <laughs> but at least you started, right? As much as you can, even if you have to do it with your teeth gritted, even if, even if you just, oh, even if you have to punch a wall first and then go do it. Try, start. You have to build a habitual tendency. If you look at your mind now, the way that you think now, if you think in neuroses, in, you know, with great neuroses, if you think with a lot of depression, 
if you think with a lot of loneliness, if you think with a lot of anger, if you think that everybody's against you, if you think that your life has been really tough, what you have there is a habit of thinking that way. It is a habit. It is simply a habit. And the more you do it, the more you continue to do it because the more deeply ingrained it becomes. It is a habit. So you have to teach yourself, take yourself by the hand. No one else apparently has loved you enough to do this. So you have to love yourself enough and take yourself by the hand and teach yourself to do something differently. So little by little, break your habit. It's like quitting cigarettes. Is there any part of you that wants to stop smoking? I mean, every part of you wants to suck that little bad boy right down, doesn't it? Every part of you wants to do that. But something in you is saying, excuse me, we want to live a long life. We want to have a better life. And so you're forcing yourself to do this thing that you just hate doing. You just hate it. It's kind of like that. In the same way, you have to break the habit of that kind of discursive thought because it plants seeds that you can't live with, that you don't want to live with. You don't want to suffer according to the thoughts that you have. Believe me, you don't want to do that. So with kindness, you have to look toward yourself and help yourself to break those habits. What about the people that seem happy all the time? It seems like they, um, they have like a lot of loving kindness. Have you ever met people like that? They just seem so bubbly and effervescent, you want to take them and wrap them on the side of the head. <laughs> hateful people. <laughs> Effusive, syrupy people. I know exactly what you mean. You just want to rub their little faces in the wall and say, now be happy. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> but seriously. What is the difference between somebody who's genuinely happy and genuinely outgoing and somebody who's like semi-miserable like yourself, maybe? What do you think the difference is? The difference is habit. Did you know that the ability to be happy is a habit. It's a habit that you learn. <laughs> there are some people, you can look at them, you see they don't have the foggiest idea how to be happy. Their minds automatically turn towards something that makes them unhappy. They automatically uh, like fixate you know, on unhappy things. And I don't mean like you have to think positive thoughts all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. That's like baby stuff. I'm talking about a habitual tendency towards a more flowing kind of openness. Uh, instead of thinking hate, hatred and judgment, you know, make it the habit of thinking in a kindly way. Uh, thinking in a kindly way, thinking in a loving way toward others. That produces happiness. That quality that you, that you want so much, you know, that others seem to have, the quality of just bubbling through life, that quality is just a learned quality. Perhaps they didn't learn it in this life, perhaps they learned it in a previous life, but generally those people are more loving, more outgoing, they're more concerned with the welfare of others. Generally that's the case. I actually have students who uh, came to me with uh, wonderful ideas like they were going to kill themselves. They became my students when they were suicidal. I can't believe that that's what it took, you know. How bad am I? I mean, I wonder. But anyway, they came to me suicidal. They came to me uh, having been depressed 
for years. I have one student that was chronically depressed for years, you know, in and out of therapy for like 10 years or something like that. And finally, um, they just, it took a long time and it took a lot of reinforcement. They broke the habit of self-absorption. Just broke the habit of self-absorption. And it takes some time, but you know, it's a final cure. It works. Once you've broken the habit of self-absorption, it's gone. So that's the kind of uh, method that you have to apply with discursive thought. First of all, you have to understand what its root is, as I have described this morning. You have to understand you know, what, it, what its condition is. How does it arise? How has it come about? Uh, what does it look like now? And furthermore, what you can do to change discursive thought in order to have a better life. Now think about all of the sentient beings who have no way to change discursive thought. They have no method, no understanding, no awareness of what goes on in their brains. And we can think that the place to start is with thoughts of generosity for them. Think with compassion of them. Think that you wish that you could get yourself into good shape and therefore be able to benefit them. Because if you are in a place of thinking compassionate thoughts and purifying the mind of negative discursive thought, you can begin to be of some help in this world. And so please think like that. Please think of your condition, the condition of your mind, how readily, really, you can change it if you wish to do so. And also, uh, think of the condition of sentient beings and how much worse off most of them are than you. Please think like that, and I hope that this teaching has been useful for you in some way. If you use it, it's useful. If you don't use it, you've been mildly entertained for about an hour and a half. So, please don't let mild entertainment be my business. I would be ever so disappointed. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.